passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 324. Basically, you take your comfort zone. What is your comfort zone? And then you want to try to expand it through various different methods and then do that as your first deal. At the end of the day, though, Brandon, it doesn't matter what size. It just matters that you do one. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host once again, David Green. I was going to go with a middle name, but I couldn't remember it. That's okay. fine because I don't want you knowing my middle name. <laughs> David Leonardo Green. What's up? How you been? Up, I've been really good. Just diving deep into this whole real estate world, learn as much as I can. How about you? Yeah, about the same. I mentioned in the show later, I read this really good book lately called, uh, recently called Vivid Vision. It was a short, easy read. It took me like an hour. Like I literally, because I flew from Denver to Salt Lake City for an hour. And I read the entire book in that hour. Then from Salt Lake City to Maui, flying back home was a seven-hour flight. I spent the entire thing 
building my company's vision, vivid vision. And uh, it was one of the most enjoyable flights. And I just have a really clear picture of where I'm headed. So anyway, I think I mentioned it on the show. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. So I'm just like fired up about this thing. But yeah, I'm growing thousand units within three years. Wow. I'm headed. Yeah. 10 X, right? All mm-hmm. right. So speaking of that, let's get to today's quick tip. All right. So today's quick tip comes from today's show. Today's show is Unbelievably good. It's fantastic. Very, very fun. And Michael Blanc, who's our uh, guest today, shares a lot of really good advice. But one of the things we talk about and one of the pieces of advice he gives, I'm going to make the quick tip. And that is like, make it easy on people. Make, if you want something from somebody, make it so incredibly easy for them. And in the show, we give an, I give an example in my own life of an agent who made something really easy on me and ended up buying a deal with them. And they made a bunch of money off this deal. And I even gave them a couple shout outs on the podcast because they made it easy. So this will help you in every area of your life, but listen for that. But basically, that's the key. Make it easy. And that's all I got about the quick tip. But that's big. I mean, I'm telling you guys, if there's one thing you do well in life, if it's that, you'll yeah. be successful. Yeah. Just Brandon and I have so many people that are reaching out that want to learn from us, that want to be around us, that want experience or exposure to what we're doing, but they don't make it easy for us to bring them into our world. So we have no idea how to do it and they miss out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very, very true. So... Uh, anyway, good, good stuff. And without further ado, now let's get to today's show. Today's show is with Michael Blanc, the Michael Blanc. He's been on the show back in episode number 66. Here's the thing. This show is both incredibly high level and incredibly, let's keep the cookies on the lower shelf. In other words, it's kind of like, I remember back in the day when I read the book, The ABCs of Real Estate Investing by Ken McElroy, it was like, this is everything about multifamily you need to know. And it was really like, it sparked my interest in it, which is why I ended up buying my first apartment complex. This episode is going to be like that for you. I really hope so anyway. It's just like, here's everything you ever wanted to know about getting started with buying apartment complexes. And like, literally, it's like, 30 questions. We just like, boom, 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 boom. David, and I just go back and forth because we're so interested in this ourselves. And so this show is definitely one you're going to want to take some notes on. Definitely one you might want to listen one, two, three times. And of course, uh, Michael Blanc, uh, you know, he has a book as well. If this stuff gets overwhelming, he's got a book called Financial Freedom uh, with Real Estate. Uh, it's a real estate investing. It's really, really good. And so if you want to get dive deeper to get that book or get the ABCs of real estate investing, there's a lot of books out there. But learn this stuff, right? This is not that complicated, but the first time hearing it, you might be a little overwhelmed if you've never heard this stuff before, but stick with us. You're going to love this show all about how to get started with real estate investing through apartment complexes. And with that, let's get to today's show. All right, Michael Blanc, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Again, how you doing, man? I'm doing awesome, man. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while since you were on the show. I don't know. It was like, what was it? Back in the sixties, wasn't it? (laughs) I don't know. It's been <laughs> like 30 forever. years ago, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's been like 400 years. So uh, I, I'm excited to kind of see where you transitioned uh, to, where you're at today. And I kind of know the topic of where we're headed today, and that's apartment complex syndication, something that I really want to get more involved in. Uh, David, I know, wants to get more involved in. So today, we're just going to pretend that the audience is not here, and we're just going to pick your brain on exactly how we're going to get started with larger syndication. I think that'll be fun. But before we get there, Let's just kind of go back. And for those who did not listen to your first episode, I guess, what, where, who are you? Where'd you come from? How'd you get into real estate? And kind of walk us through your very first kind of entrance into real estate. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I have a background like many other people. I was taught to get good grades, get a good job. And that's what I did. I got into computer science. So I was actually a programmer, believe it or not. I wasn't a very good programmer, but I was in the right place, you know, right place, right time. Uh, joined the software startup late in the 90s called Web Methods. We IPO'd in March 2000 and put a bunch of money in my pocket. And nice. I was the man. Then in 2004, <laughs> I read the Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which ruined my life. Yes, because when I read it, I was like, man, I'm such an idiot doesn't matter how much money I have in the bank. It depends on how much passive income I have, which I had basically none. Sure. So after several months of a really like, man, I, I decided to throw it all away. And I just quit my job and just uh, did everything. I learned how to trade stocks and options. I flipped a house. I took an apartment building boot camp. But my big idea was restaurants. And th- th- before you judge me, which you you're, 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 you should. You <laughs> yeah, should. judgment right uh, there. Before you judge me, I was surrounded by uh, fran- burger franchisees. And they're like, oh, we're going to hire a guy. He's going to run everything. We're just going to, you know, we're going to fund it. And it's essentially a passive investment. I was like, well, that's great. That's my cash flow business. So I went all in, Brandon. I just took my, my chips and went, boop, cash flow business. I'm in because I want financial freedom. I'll make a long story short. I subsequently lost my IPO millions in the restaurant experience Ooh. and added a couple hundred grand of debt on top of that and clawed my way out with real estate and with so many people who are thinking who have real estate on their mind, a single family house investing. In my case, I, I was flipping houses. I didn't have any of my money anymore. So I had learned how to raise money. Uh, and and I, you know, I got into an apartment building and then after like several years, I was like, man, I'm making great money, but this is such a job. Like I couldn't leave 30 days like I do now or yeah. 60 whenever I want. And I was like, man, I got this. Sometimes something's not right. And I, I determined that that uh, I need to do a little bit less of this and a lot more of that, which is the apartment buildings were sending me a mailbox money. You know, and that's kind of when people were asking me, how do you raise money? How do you do apartment buildings? That's when I started blogging for you guys back okay. in 2014. And uh, and then doing so, I, I've come to the conclusion that all the shenanigans I've done, the single best way to achieve financial freedom is with multifamily investing. After all the things I've done, that's why I was so, you know, so enthusiastic about blogging about it. And then, you know, from that point, we just shifted. We got uh, deals, you know, new connections were made, deals came in, money came in. And that's kind of uh, so now we're all we're doing is, uh, is multifamily syndications. Cool. Cool. That's great. All right. So. Now that's kind of your story, and that's exactly what I wanted to hear, kind of like how you got started into why you transitioned into apartments. And so, like I said, today's show is going to be a little bit different. I want I want to really just dive into topical how to invest in apartments. So I want to just kind of go through, I, I mean, I literally listed out like, I don't know, 30 questions here. So we, I don't even know if I have time for everyone, but I thought we'd just go through this. We're just going to call this one-on-one coaching with, well, two-on-one coaching with Michael and David. So uh, let's just kind of run through this stuff. I, I, I'm first curious... What do you think is a good size to start with? When you want to get into apartments, like can the 21-year-old who's got no money and no nothing, should he go and buy a 200 unit? Is that feasible? What's your general recommendation on, on where to start with size-wise and, and where you're at in life? So it's more important that you start with something. Uh, I used to think go big or go home, and I no longer think that. And, uh, and, and the reason is because I have this thing called the law of the first deal, which says that if you do a multifamily of any size, you will be financially free in three to five years. And I know that because of my talking with my podcast and talking to people and studying this at great length. And the phenomenon is so universal and so strong, even for people that do a duplex, right? Yeah. Because what happens is 
They do a duplex, which, you know, and then the second deal they do comes in rapid, almost automatic succession. And it's never a duplex again. It's normally around 10 units. The third deal then is always almost around 20 to 30 units. And the deal after that is normally 50 plus. So that to answer your question, it doesn't matter what size it is. However, having said that, it depends a lot on you. If you have, you know, if, if you're a high income earner and you're trying to replace $10,000 of income, well, you want to find a deal that's both meaningful and achievable. So a duplex in your case would be highly achievable, but maybe not so meaningful. So don't pick a duplex. Pick something more like a 20-unit. So basically, you, you take the edge, of, you take your comfort zone. What is your comfort zone? And then you want to try to expand it through various different methods and then do that as your first deal. At the end of the day, though, Brandon, it doesn't matter what size. It just matters that you do one. I love that. I, okay, so I want to pick apart a couple of things you just said here in a good way. Like, because I feel like I'm talking to myself here. I mean, I say the same stuff all the time, right? It doesn't really matter what that first deal is as long as you get that first deal. Where a lot of people struggle is they just like want, they want that home run deal. That's like the thing they heard that, you know, during the deal deep dive on the podcast, that was like a home run that you did after 10 years of doing this, right? They want that deal. And they think that if they can't get that deal, then they probably shouldn't do anything. I love that you just say like, start with something. Uh, on, on the same token, what you're also talking about is like, what I call the stack. I put into this phrase called the stack and it's this framework of thinking about real estate, right? Where if you start, what a lot of people do is what you and I both did when we got started, right? Like a single family house, maybe flipping a single family house. And what we do is we get stuck in that mode for a long time because we're comfortable. So I love that you said the two to maybe 10 to maybe 30, that's the stack, right? It's saying, I'm going to push the bounds of what I feel comfortable every single time. So I'm growing exponentially. I'm not just staying nice in my little cocoon of whatever it is that I feel good about. And this is something that I've struggled with a lot over the past decade is I always want to go back to where I feel comfortable. I want to go back to that single family house, to that duplex. Uh, nothing wrong with starting there, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's smart to think, how do I grow? Well, greatest is, is right outside your comfort zone, always. There's also something you said about the first deal, that home run, and that does hold a lot of people back. Here's the thing about the first deal. The value of the first deal far outweighs any kind of money you can ever make from it. Okay, I want to be very, very clear about that. Because of the law of the first deal, because that second deal will come along in, in rapid, almost automatic succession, you'd have to expend more energy not to do the second deal than to simply do it. And it's all because of that first deal. And there's several reasons why. We can go into that if you want. But really, the value of that is much, much higher. So even if someone were to do a mediocre deal, even if you weren't to pay yourself an acquisition fee, or if you were to give up 90% of the equity to your investors, which is insane, but let's say you did that, the value of that first deal far, far, far outweighs any kind of monetary value you would get from it. Yeah, I, I love that. And that applies to people buying, I mean, doing anything. If you're out there saying, I got no money to invest in real estate, I want to buy that first duplex, but I, I mean, I have nothing. Like I oftentimes joke with people, give away 99% of the deal then. Who cares? Like nobody's rich on their first deal. Nobody is rich on their first deal, but they're rich because of their first deal, right? Because the first leads right. to the second, second leads to the third and so on. So like, you got to get something done. Now, that doesn't mean go buy a bad deal, right? No, you shouldn't do a bad, bad deal. Absolutely right. And, and you never, you never, yeah. you always could take care of investors, whoever that may be first, and you have to use conservative underwriting. Yeah. But if you have to pay yourself less or possibly nothing at all, that's something to consider. Yeah. You know, what's funny is people will go pay a guru 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000. Like, honestly, we're not exaggerating. There's, I think someone was just telling me that they almost signed up $50,000 and you pay your own ticket to fly to Texas and he'll walk you through like his flip business, right? But they won't do a deal where they think that they're going to give away most of the equity. 
You know, I heard of one of the one of the guys the other day, one of the TV guys, I, I won't say his name, but he was, I don't know, bragging is the right word, but he was on stage at a conference. His new plan, his new like platinum level, whatever coaching program is $250,000. $250,000 to be able to learn how to do this. I just, it, it always, uh, it always shocks me. But anyway, I, again, I don't have a problem with paying for education. I mean, like if it, if it's going to help you, if it's going to get there, fine. But if you got a quarter million dollars or 50 grand, that could go a long way as to, uh, to getting that first duplex or whatever you got to do to get started. Let's go to the syndication versus not syndication. Like you don't have to syndicate. Maybe we should step back even further. Can you define what syndication is before we start talking about whether or not somebody, and you can tie that into, should somebody do that or just go ahead and just do it all on their own? What are the kind of the pros and cons of each and what is syndication? Yeah, syndication is really at the heart of what all entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs make something happen out of thin air. And that's really what syndication is. A syndicator basically finds a deal where there was none, uh, puts a manager in place, and then gets investors, a variety of different investors to invest a deal. Without that entrepreneur, there would be no deal, right? The investor wouldn't have anything to invest in. Yeah. And so the, the beauty of, of a syndication is that I, as an entrepreneur, can do exactly that, make something happen out of thin air, whether I have money or not. The question of whether you should syndicate or not is one of your personal situation and resources. If you have a million dollars to deploy and you can fund your own deal, well, there's really no, no need to syndicate. However, you do one or two deals and guess what? You're going to be out of money. So if you want to continue doing that, you're going to end up raising money. So the, the, real, the real thing with syndication is it really allows you to scale. Mm, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So scaling up. I mean, I know like oh, the first time Grant Cardone was on our show up until that point, he had never syndicated up until that point. He had just built all his money was over the course of 30, 40 years or whatever. Uh, and I think he had, I think it was 300 million the first when he was on our show. And I think, I think he's hoping to be at a billion by the end of this year. And that was like two years ago. Right. So he's definitely like, I mean, he made a lot of money to be able to personally go up to $300 million, but now because he's syndicating, he's now shot that up, you know, three, 400% in the last couple of years. So I definitely know what you're saying there. And that, that's why I'm interested in syndications because, uh, you know, my money will only go so far, right? And it allows you, when I say you, the general, it allows you to get started without any money. If you have zero in your pocket, all of a sudden you get into the apartment building uh, business and this addresses the major objection that people have in their minds. Oh, I need lots of cash, don't I? Well, you do, but it doesn't have to be your own. Yeah. So if you're going to be investing other people's money, you better know what you're doing. You'd agree, I'm sure, Michael. So let's go through some of the terms that uh, multifamily investors have to understand so that if you get to the point where you want to borrow someone else's money, you can you can pitch them or you can explain to them a deal and they'll feel comfortable with you. The first is what we want to talk about is like the cash on cash return. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah. So cash on cash return, let's say the investor, a, a investor uh, invests $100,000. The cash on cash is, and this is the beauty about multifamily real estate is that there's actually cash flow distributions. Unlike the stock market, you invest a bunch of money and you make your money when you sell for a gain, presumably. But with multifamily real estate, there's actually rental income, which creates income, which allows you to have distributions. So the cash on cash measures, what is my annual cash flow distribution based uh, divided by my investment? So if I'm distributing $10,000 to that investor, then the cash and cash return is 10,000 divided by 100,000. So it's a 10% cash and cash. Okay. So that's the return that you're getting on your money, which is very similar to like a return on investment, like an ROI, right? It's part of it. Now let's talk about the full picture. Thank you for bringing that up. Let's get into the internal rate of return and what that means. So internal rate of return, I'm going to answer this question in a slightly roundabout way. The, the internal rate of return or IRR is a very advanced concept. If you're raising money from friends and family, uh, I would advise that you don't speak about the IRR because it's an advanced thing. What I would advise is that you talk about the average annual return. 
which is very similar, but not mathematically exactly the same. But the, really the question is, what is my overall return? And that's really what the average annual return measures. So if I put in $100,000 and the investment period is five years, I want to know how much money am I going to make overall over the, the entire life cycle of that. And let's, and let's say I'm doubling my money in, in, in five years. So I'm getting $100,000 back and I will have made $100,000. And that $100,000 quote profit is made up of the cash flow distributions as well as a, a profit when we sell at the end. And so now I have, I have that 100% return, let's say, where I doubled my money and I divide that by the number of years, say five, and the average annual return is 20%. Now, compound that is going to be slightly less than that. But on average, that's what the investor is really asking. Now, yeah. uh, so I would I would stay away from IR because the IR is a mathematical formula that measures the net present value of of time and money, and it just confuses the hay out of everybody. And yeah. a confused mind says what? No. no so yeah. don't confuse your investors. Though when you're analyzing deals, yes, you know we're talking about the IRR because it allows us to compare different investment vehicles, uh, even accommodating things like a cash out refinance, which messes up your average annual return. But again, I'm complicating things. But people are thinking, what is the overall return, what's my average annual return, and what's my cash on cash? You're basically taking every variable that could play into this investment and adding it all into a projection. So it's more like an algorithm that takes several different variables and puts it all together. You're looking at when I sell, how much would I sell for if things went according to plan? If we get this cash flow, how much would it be? If we refinance halfway through and we get our money back, that obviously affects the ROI because capital is being returned. So investors have less money in there. It's probably the most accurate way to compare several investments together, but that makes it the most confusing. And I think what you're saying is that's why you should stay away from it because it will scare yeah. people that are that are new. Okay, next yeah. up is a, is a metric that's much more simple and easy to understand, and that's going to be the capitalization rate or the cap rate. What's that? Well, it's actually a little more, uh, I think, more difficult to explain and understand mm-hmm. uh, because it involves simple math, which is terrible, I know. But the cap rate, <laughs> it's very simple. Cap rate is used to value commercial real estate. So in, in commercial real estate, uh, the more the box produces an income, the more it's worth. Right, so I can buy a box uh, for a million dollars, and then right to the next is an identical-looking box, but it's worth 1.5 million dollars because the one on the right is producing more income than the one on the left, and that multiplier, that multiplier of income, is essentially the cap rate. Yeah, so that's really what what that's really the cap rate, and we can get into math, but again, I don't want to confuse people. Sure. But yeah. the cap rate, people, the next question people ask is, where does the cap rate come from? And the answer is, you get it from your broker. Your broker would say, oh, this is an an eight cap property. Right. And so the, the simple math for those that need to know is it's basically the NOI divided by the cap rate uh, gets you the value. And that's that's essentially but it's used to value commercial real estate. OK, so cap rate is usually like a like in an area or for a certain type of investment, there's like an average. Right. So you could say that in Memphis right now with these apart midsize apartment buildings, a six cap is pretty normal. Is that is that kind of right? And then. Therefore, mathematically, again, we, this is really something like it's a lot easier to explain like a whiteboard. But like if the income goes up, uh, like if your profit on this property goes up, if your net operating income goes up, the property should be worth more if the cap rate stays the same. Now, if cap rates change, then that could change things as well. And so it's uh, they're all the three are kind of related together. Uh, and there's a million videos on YouTube. If people are like, I mean, it's a cool concept that you definitely have to understand if you're getting into multifamily or commercial real estate. But you can find on YouTube a million videos about this that'll explain it, uh, and a million blog posts on Bigger Pockets explain it. But anyway, I think that's a pretty good explanation. Is yeah, cap rate is is that multiplier uh, that makes something worth more or less. So, what about cash flow? Just a nice easy one. Like, what is cash flow? 
Yeah, cash flow is essentially the the, the rental income that's left over after uh, after exp- uh, all, covering all your expenses as well as your mortgage payments or your debt service, and that's distributed to the investors, and that affects the cash on cash, right? So the cash flow divided by the original investment equals your cash on cash return. All right, all right. How about what is a syndication? Well, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Again, it's basically taking a variety of uh, money from a variety of investors and using that to purchase a multifamily property. And there's some SEC guidelines around that. Uh, your SEC attorney will take care of all the details. Okay. And I want to get in. I have some questions about SEC a little bit later. And obviously, you're not an attorney, but we'll get to that in a little bit. What about net operating income? You mentioned that a minute ago, but let's define that. Yeah, the net operating income, that's that's the number that uh, the figure that is used to do, to derive the value of a building. And the net operating income is, is your income minus expenses, but before debt service. That's called the net operating income or NOI. Right. So you have income minus expenses is the NOI, and then minus debt service is essentially your cash flow. But the value of the building is derived from the net operating income. So the higher the NOI is, the higher the value of the, of the building. And by debt service, we just mean like your mortgage. Mortgage. Yeah. Yep. So it's like the profit of the company before you have to account for whatever you spend to buy the building, basically. That's right. And then the number you get when you're after you take out the mortgage would be cash flow. So these are all, I mean, it's not very complicated stuff, but it something about multifamily investing, we make it sound more complicated than it is because it makes us smarter. You hear multifamily <laughs> investors will will throw around a lot of fancy terms that you're like, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. But like, I know this is a, just a sidetrack, but like agency debt, you'll hear, oh yeah, I'm talking about agency debt. And people are like, I don't know what that means. Is that like the FBI? And really it's just like, <laughs> no, it's like a Fannie Mac, a Freddie Mac Fannie Mae loan. Like the easiest type of thing that there is, but they give it a cool term. Okay. There you go. Next up would be, what does it mean when we talk about value add? Value add is essentially forcing the appreciation of a building. Now, what does that mean? Forcing appreciation, was done, it implies that I'm making the value go up in some way. Uh, how am I doing that? So I'm, I'm making the NOI, in order to make the building go up, I have to then make the NOI go up. Well, how do I make the NOI go up? I can do that in a variety of ways. I can, I can raise rents. Or if, if the building is, is uh, the vacancy, for example, is very high, I can fix that problem. Or if the expenses are high, I can reduce the expenses. All those things will affect the NOI. So if I, if I buy a building at whatever NOI it is and I apply the going cap rate, I get a certain value. Let's say it's a million dollars. Back to our initial example. And I do all these things and I increase NOI in a variety of different ways. And within a year or two or three, the NOI is now higher. And that same building that was worth a million dollars before is now worth $1.5 million without the market doing anything. And that's a value add. Value add means that I'm actually adding value. I'm doing a bunch of stuff to add value and therefore I force appreciation. And that is the beauty of this because when the, in the house flipping business, I added value in a similar way because I had to make rent- renovations. Uh, but the value of that building was purely driven by comps. It, 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 and that was highly market dependent. If the market went up, my building would go up or my, my house would go up if the market went down like in the recession. Regardless of what I did, it still was, it was, it went down. And with multifamily, I just have to increase the NOI and do, get the same thing. Yeah. And that's why Brandon and I are so just like gung ho about people understanding real estate investing rather than just caught blindly following someone else's model. Because when you understand what drives value, then you can understand what moves you need to make to increase value. So like, for instance, you've got ROI. ROI is dependent on two things, how much money you make and how much money you put into a deal. If you can put less money in a deal or you can make more money, you can increase your ROI. There's only two levers you got to pull, right? Well, what you're talking about with value add with multifamily is very similar. There's a cap rate and there's an NOI. You can't really control a cap rate, just like you can't really control how much money you make buying a single family house because rents are going to be what they are. 
But you can control how much money you leave in a deal. That's why we like the Burr method because you can get more money out and increase your ROI. Well, with multifamily add-ons, you can control the NOI. So the better you run that business, the lower your expenses are or the higher your rents are, the more you can make that property worth money. And it, it sounds complicated when we talk about it, but it's actually really, really simple when you boil it down. And I think, Michael, like you've done a very good job explaining that. Yeah, it's, it is simple in the sense that the favorite deals that we, we love are, are, are deals that are self-managed. These are owners who are trying to maybe cut corners, save money, and they manage their own building. Maybe they've owned it for a long time. They don't have to squeeze every single dime out of the pro, uh, out of their property, and they're they're great with it. But if you take a building like that that's slightly mismanaged or grossly mismanaged, and you put a professional manager in place, that that manager now can actually do the value add for you. And so it's actually relatively simple to add value. You don't have to be a genius. And not only that, but a small increase in NOI will make a huge disproportionate different in, in value. So I don't have to like, I don't have to like have a home run, like you said earlier, Brandon. If I if I can tweak, if I can increase rents by 50 bucks, reduce expenses by 25 bucks, that is a if you divide that by the cap rate and you times it by the number of unit units, you can you can create hundreds of thousands of dollars fairly, fairly easily. Yeah, they say that uh small hinges swing big doors. And that's your hinge. It's a very that's good point. Okay. Next, next thing we want to ask is what is the difference between an accredited investor versus sophisticated investor? And why does that matter? It matters because um, depending on who you are, we'll talk about in a second, it, it, it depends on who you can, who can invest in a particular syndication. So accredited investors are high net worth individuals. There's around that. There's people with lots of money, let's say. And the SEC then says, well, if you have a lot, a lot of money, you're kind of on your, on your own. You should know what you're doing. And if you lose the money, well, you're probably okay. And then there's a non-accredited investor. Those are people who aren't rich, okay, let's let's say. And and for those, a lot of the SEC rules protect them, uh, the, the, those non-accredited investors. Of the non-accredited investors, there's something called a sophisticated investor who's basically non, uh, non-accredited. They're not rich, but they have some experience with investing in something probably outside the stock market. So maybe they took a class or a seminar or they have rental property and or something like that. And, and those are considered sophisticated investors. So the reason it matters is you as a syndicator, depending on what kind of SEC exemption you file, you can take up to 35 non-accredited investors and then unlimited amount of accredited investors, which for most people doesn't matter. If I have like 10 investors in a deal, that'll be all I ever have right in the beginning. It's only when you're doing larger deals where you have to pay uh, attention to that. And the requirements around bringing those non-accredited investors on is to have a pre-existing relationship with people. In other words, they can't be strangers. You have to know them. You have to meet them in person, have a phone call, an email, or something where you can say hey, there's a pre-existing relationship, and you can't uh, give them a deal when you first uh, when you first see them. Non-accredited, I mean, accredited investors are quite a bit different. Again, because the SEC doesn't really protect them as much as non-accredited. So for the for the beginning syndicator, uh, the only thing that really matters is how you solicit and bring on investors. So you can't bring on strangers. You can't put up a billboard. You can't advertise. It has to be all pre-existing relationships. Okay. Yeah. And that's a tough, that's a tough line sometimes I feel like. And I, I just went to a, a Joe Fairless's conference and a lot of that conversation was on syndication. And it's interesting, like, the gray that's in there. Like, what is a pre-existing relationship exactly? I mean, like, how many conversations? How close do you have to be? I mean, somebody listens to you on a podcast and calls you up. Does that count? And a lot of the stuff is kind of left to the 
I guess, the courts to someday decide, it seems like. Is that is that true? Do you have any insight yeah, there's on a, that? There's a, there's a civil action letter, which, which again, I'm not an attorney, nor I pretend to be one, but, there, but there's a, there's a let, letter written by a syndicator uh, to the SEC, and they said that if, if I were to do these things, would I be okay when the, with, within the SEC guidelines? And they said yes. And so we everybody kind of hangs our hat on that, which is essentially um, a, it's a, it's a system of at defining pre-existing relationships. So for example, let's say I have a website, someone fills out a form and I, and I want to establish a pre-existing relationship. Well, uh, the more the more touch points I have with that person, the better I get to know that person, the more I can say there's a pre-existing relationship. So I want to, f- I want to have them fill out a questionnaire that asks them questions about their investing experience. What have they done? Are they accredited, non-accredited? Then I want to have a phone call with them. I want to have a series of emails. I might want to meet them in person. I might want to do a Zoom call. And then some time should go by. And at one point, I can say, okay, I feel pretty good about having a pre-existing relationship. I can now show that person a deal. Uh, but not before then, and so this this civil this civil this, civil, this letter then kind of describes the, the there's like seven points it goes goes through, and so we're kind of we and a lot of other syndicators are just and as, as well as Joe I'm sure uh, are uh, very aware of these of these letters, and so we have a routine of interactions with new investors before we show them a live deal. When I was a police officer, we would have similar situations with like the Fourth Amendment, freedom from search and seizure of the government without due cause. And there's a lot of gray area with like, well, what becomes due cause, right? And they would all determine it by case law. Some cop would search somebody and they'd find drugs and some judge would look at it and say, was this search lawful or not, right? And it was like that with when you can use force, uh, all kinds of things. Is there a place like people can go to to get case law on how – judges have determined what was and what wasn't a pre-existing relationship? I think that's a question for the SEC attorney, for sure. Uh, and and the thing yeah. that the, the frustrating thing about that is every single SEC attorney will give you a slightly different response. Mm. Yep. Yeah. If well, you ask, yeah. Like the, if you ask 10 SEC attorneys, you'll get 11 responses. Like, yeah, yeah it's like they're. Isn't that tough. just how life goes when you get into this space, <laughs> yeah. though? Like you can never yeah. get a solid answer from anyone. It's the same way I felt when I was a cop. I'm like, well, can I do this? And they're like, well, it depends. Everything started with, yeah. well, it depends. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Last yeah, question. That, that was good. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the difference between a general partner and a limited partner. Yeah. So in general, the general partners are the entrepreneurs. We call them the syndicators, the sponsors. These are the people who are doing, putting the deal together, who are operating the deal on a day-to-day basis. And then there's the limited partners who are the passive investors. And and, uh, and in the context of, of, an, of an LLC, those are actually not the right words, but we use them all the time because it it communicates the uh, the roles uh, of a, of a syndication. You got the GPs who are calling the shots, they're putting the deal together, and there's the LPs who invest the money and have limited uh, voting rights. But their liabilities are also limited to the amount of money they invested. Versus the general partners have essentially unlimited liability because they're responsible for the deal itself and they're signing on notes and they're doing these and then the other thing. All right. Cool. So, so you, in a typical deal, you're going to be the general partner. Let's just in real life, like you're generally a general partner. (laughs) If I were to invest money with you, I am a limited partner uh, because I just put my money with you. Now I can't lose. If I, if I give you a hundred grand, I'm likely not going to lose more than my hundred grand. I mean, that's what I'm limited to. Right. And it's not just a loss of the capital, it's liability. Imagine lawsuits. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and so the LPs uh, are, will not be part of any kind of lawsuits. The worst that can happen, which is bad enough, is that you lose your investment. But yep. there should be nothing outside of that typically around lawsuits. OK. Yeah, that's that's great. And uh, is that ahead. where the phrase comes from? Limited partner because their liability is limited. I think so. 
I've never heard it, but Brandon said it, so it probably is true. Uh, wow. Look at me. All right. <laughs> this show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As home prices and interest rates continue to rise and inventory levels dip, it's getting harder to find quality flips and wholesale deals. When there's not enough on-market inventory to go around, it's time to start looking off-market. Lucky for you, there are millions of homeowners nationwide who own a property they need to get off their hands. I got two words for you, my friend. PropStream it. PropStream is the leading real estate data provider and recognized as a Tech 100 honoree by Housing Wire for the fourth consecutive year. With PropStream, you can search over 155 million properties nationwide using 120 plus search filters like pre-foreclosure, bankruptcy, pre-probate, failed listings, and more to help you find motivated sellers in seconds. PropStream offers both public record data and an MLS sales estimate that's over 99% accurate to help you get the most accurate comps even in non-disclosure states. PropStream also provides lead automation, skip tracing, and a marketing suite with emails, postcards, and custom landing pages to close more deals efficiently. Get started today with their seven-day free trial and get 50 leads for free. Head on over to www.propstream.com BP. That's www.propstream.com BP. Let's talk about the different ways a syndicator makes money because I find this fascinating. Back in the day, I thought it was just like, hey, the syndicator gets some kind of percentage of the deal, but it's actually multiple ways that you as a syndicator can make uh, revenue. Is that correct? It is. And that's why I love this business. There's, there's at least three ways a syndicator can make money. Uh, one is uh, when, when they purchase the property at closing through something called the acquisition fee. And that acquisition fee is typically 1% to 3% of the purchase price is paid to the syndicator or syndicators at closing. And some people are like, wow, that's not, that doesn't sound right. Why are they getting a hundred grand on this deal? Well, yeah. if you divide the whatever acquisition fee they're getting by the amount of hours that syndicator has worked uh, to not only close that deal, but the other 10 that didn't close, uh, they're basically working for minimum wage. So that is totally <laughs> deserved, number one. Number two, the second way to make money is uh, through the equity uh, that syndicators get in a deal. So for example, the, normally the syndication is, let's, is, is done in equity splits. So 70-30 split means that the, the Lindemann Partners LPs get 70% of the deal and the, the GPs get 30% of the deal, even though the LPs put in all the money. So it's this, it's this idea of what's called carried interest. So the GPs get 30% of the deal for, out, for not putting any money in all. It's, called, it's like sweat equity for putting the deal together. So the GPs then get paid out of their uh, percentage of the equity. They get their share of the cash flow, 30% cash flow, and then the investors 
get the other remaining. So that's another way to get paid while, while they own the property. There's also something called asset management fees, not unlike property management fees. Uh, and this is for essentially managing the asset. And it's expressed in a variety of different ways. It could be, it could be a percentage of NOI, it could be a percentage of, of income collect, collected, could be a variety of those things, but the idea is the asset management fees are there to uh, cover overhead on the on the of the syndicator while they're managing the asset. Uh, and the third way is uh, it's not frequently done, but it could be at the end of the of the deal when all the principal is returned, uh, either through a refinance or through a sale, through a capital transaction fee. Uh, and very few people do it, but it's not unreasonable to charge, say, a point at the end. So the idea is, as a syndicator is that you make money up front during the investment and once it's disposed of. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the reward of a syndicator is that if they do, you know, if they do all this work of finding the deal, bringing together investors, they should get paid at various points in it because otherwise they couldn't, I mean, most syndicators wouldn't be able to survive and put food on the table if they didn't make a little bit of money, at least sometime in between. I mean, it was limited to only like the super wealthy who have already succeeded in life, which aren't probably going to put all the work into syndicating a deal. So there's definitely a value to the syndicator. And there's also a huge value to the, uh, to the, to the limited partners, right? Because now they don't have to go find the deal. They don't have to go find, uh, do all that work, raise the money. They just give their money to somebody and they get 70%, you know, you know proportionally, you know, up to 70% of the deal potentially. Now, does that change? Like, do you see sometimes 20, you know, 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40? Like, how do you decide how much the syndicator, the general partner gets of that and how do you decide how much the limited partner gets? So that's typically answered by the, the return of the deal. So if let's say you have a really, really rich deal, well, it could be a 60-40 split because their deal is so great. The bigger question to the investor is, what are the returns? And we talked about that earlier. And typically, what is my average annual return? In other words, how long does it take to double my money? And what is my cash flow, my cash and cash return? And if, if those are satisfactory, at the end of the day, the LP should not care how what the split is. Now, some still care. They're like, oh, 60-40 split. What a greedy syndicator you are. You're paying yourself too much. And I'm like, okay, well, you're getting a return. So at the end of the day, what do you care how much we pay ourselves? But typically, splits are between 60-40 and and 80-20 sometimes. As a deal get a lot larger, you might see a 90-10 split, uh, but it's it's not very, not very customary. Okay. Would you personally like take a smaller, I mean, let's say this is something that I personally have, have thought about. Like when I'm putting together like the ideas of syndication, I'm running the numbers and sometimes the deal just doesn't pencil out for the investors, the limited partners on a 70-30. In 80-20, it actually looks pretty good. Like would you take a smaller cut personally just to get the deal done and how, how low would you go? Well, it depends. Like we talked about earlier, is, if this, is this your first or third deal? Then the answer is maybe, right? Maybe. If it, it, or or okay. if it's not, maybe it's a larger deal. Maybe it's a $10, $20 million deal. Well, I'd rather do an 80-20 of a gigantic deal than a 70-30 of nothing. <laughs> so so it really, it really, yeah, de- it really yeah. depends. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, and again, yeah, I can see how it ties into the, the thing we talked about earlier about if it's your first deal. Yeah. You know, you no, I'm curious, there. Michael, in all practicality, how much does it matter? Like how much is it determined whether what your split is by who the pers- the people that you are borrowing money from are? I guess a better way to ask that is if you're borrowing money from extremely sophisticated people that have a lot of options that will give them a high return, 
do you have to give them a smaller percentage? Whereas if you've got a bunch of people that are like, man, I have zero idea what to do with my money, please do something with it, then you just offer a Yeah, it's a percentage. lot driven by who your investor is, right? So for example, your friends and family would be just unbelievably ecstatic if you gave them a 10% return yeah. on their money. They're like, I can't get anywhere near that. Versus if you're going with a sophisticated yeah. investor who actually looks at deals or maybe has some done deal, they're like, I won't get, any, I won't get up for anything less than a 15% IRR because they'll use the IRR yeah. term because they know better. Uh, and yep. so you have to yep. structure your deals based on who your investors are. There you go. See, that makes a ton of sense to me. And the and the the offset for that is even if you have to give away a worse split for yourself and give away more to your limited partners, if they have a whole bunch of money, right? You're happy to do that because you're going to make more money. If they've got five million instead of fifty thousand dollars, and you get to keep twenty percent instead of forty percent, you probably have zero problem doing that because you could buy a bigger deal which has more meat on the bone. There's more to go around, and the volume will make up for it. Yeah, that's that's right. Can can I ask your opinion on family and friends? You know, we mentioned it a few times. How do you feel about borrowing money from grandma or from, you know, Uncle John on your first or second syndication deal? I mean, I would address that the same question as taking money from anybody, whether it's your friends, family or people you're networking with. Uh, First of all, you shouldn't be taking money unless you know what the heck you're doing, first of all. Uh, And you shouldn't be taking money where uh, it's the last, you know, it's the last money that someone has. Uh, This is why I advise, you know, the minimum investment really should be $50,000. Don't invest money at $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 at a time. And and I just look from my own experience, every time, you know, especially when you do it early on, you just want to take people's money and you're taking $25,000. And it's the non-sophisticated investor whose last, you know, last $25,000 you took that are constantly calling you every single week. Hey, how's my money doing? How about now? Why, why is my check late? Where's my check? Like, and, and you don't want to deal with people like that. So, you know, take grandma's check if they, if you, just under those, under those parameters. Okay. Yeah. That's really, that's really good. Cause yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone back and forth on that, but it's true. Like the the people who are the non-sophisticated ones are the ones calling you because the other ones, like they just trust the process mm-hmm. is going to work itself out in the end. All right. One more, one more question before we get into location on, you know, finding deals and all that. I'm curious about, uh, I guess this idea of shoot, where was I going with this? I had this really good question. <laughs> Dang it. Now I don't remember it at all. All right. Well, whatever. I'll, I'm going to remember it later. I'm going to come back to it. Brandon just uh, had that moment where he walked into the kitchen and he's like, why did I come in here again? What was yeah. I looking for? That's exactly what I did. Oh my gosh. I, I had like, even as I was saying it, whatever. Okay. Let's go to location. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Uh, Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. <laughs> there it is. I know I what wanted, I wanted in the fridge. Yeah, I knew what I wanted. I came for, for I don't know, whatever. Uh, LaCroix. All right. Uh, I'm wondering, like, oh, no, no. Okay, wait. Let me, let me turn that. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Good deal. Okay. Syndicators have two things. I got it. I got it. The syndicators have two. Uh, well, there's a lot of options, but let, let's say there's two, if we divide them into two categories, there are the value add deals where all the profit generally in the deal is made at the very end. I mean, like the cash flow is almost nothing because the property is disgusting. It's going to need years of rehab. We're going through all these units and they're like, probably isn't going to be any cash flow for the next three years. However, at the end of the day, it's going to be a really, really good deal. Then there's a deal. It's like, this is mostly a cash flow play. We're hoping to get a little bit bump at the end, maybe add a million dollars in value, but it's going to be give you a you know a ten percent return cash and cash return. So I guess what I'm asking is, where do you personally lie in there of like a fifteen percent IRR but zero percent cash flow versus a fifteen percent cash on cash return and a you know a fifteen percent IRR at the end? You know what I mean? So the answer is somewhere in the middle. As I don't I don't love the first 
And the second is really hard to find. So the reason I don't like the first, because it smells a lot like a development deal, right? There's no money, no money, money, and there's a giant pop at the end. I don't love that. The reason I'm in this business yeah. is I want cash flow as close as possible to day one. Is So the ideal scenario, Brandon, is where you have a, a stable cash flowing value add deal, meaning that it's already making money, but it's not making as much money as it should. So I can go in there with a, with a 10-year you know, agency loan, like David said, Fannie or Freddie Mac, you know, low-cost uh, government loan. And because it's already 90% or, or more occupied, but, but the rents are low because it hasn't been renovated. That's the okay. ideal scenario because the risk is a lot lower. Now, if you're going to do a heavier value add like you're talking about, there's st- you're still looking for stabilization somewhere in year two. So your business plan has to be really concrete saying the rents are low and the vacancy are high because they haven't made any repairs whatsoever in the last 10 years. And the place is a dump, but that want that the property next door is gorgeous and the rent's $150 higher, which I go in there and I hire a general contractor and they're just going to they're just going to clean everything up and, and renovate the units. And they get a strong property manager to lease up the units. By the time year two starts, I should have, or before, I should already ha- start having cash flow. So it's it's not ideal to not have cash flow for more than, I don't know, okay. six to 12 months. And then one more follow-up question on that. I know we're getting real deep in this and I hope people don't mind. But like, this is something else I, I've, I've been dealing with both of my own personal investments and uh, in what I plan to do in the future. Let's just say you raise money for a deal and it needs a lot of CapEx, a lot of like that fix up in the beginning. Do you have a separate pot for that money that doesn't affect the cash flow? Because I mean, if you think about it, let's say your property cash flowed $100,000 this month, but you also had a hundred grand in CapEx that you already knew was going to be there. You already raised money for it's in like, it's separate, right? Do you distribute that $100,000 in cash flow to your investors? Or do you just say, hey, it's basically a wash. We made no money this month. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Where I'm going with that? It depends. It depends what the $100,000 is for, right? If the $100,000 is for improvements, renovations, you better use it for that purpose. Otherwise, you can't execute in your business plan, right? However, the the general rule of thumb is to always raise more money than you think you need. So in this case, let's say I raise $100,000 more just for good measure. Let's say because uh, for emergencies and, you know, it's a good thing to do. But let's say you've you've gotten your, your wrapped your head around that you stabilize a property after 12 months. You still have the 100 grand. You've already done all your renovations. You don't really foresee anything major. Well, then you might want to just return that $100,000, maybe not as a return, but as capital. And your operating agreement can allow for that. So now what you're doing is it's not a return, but you're reducing the principal that was invested in a deal. So you have so many different options. You can do really whatever you want. Okay, cool. Let's move on. Location. How do you find a good place to invest? There's a lot of markets places you should invest. Local, long distance. How do you research it? What can you tell us about location? Yeah, never. Almost always long distance, right? So no one's buying in Hawaii or the Bay Area. No <laughs> offense to you guys, right? So uh, 85% of people are, are buying outside of their own area. And so where we want to go is we want to go to areas that are growing, that were growing, but we can still get some kind of yield. So San Francisco might be growing like like a weed, but I can't get any yield there at all. So I don't have that the combination of two things I'm looking for. Versus, for example, Jacksonville, Florida, crazy demographic growth, and the cap rates are still reasonable. So I want to find areas like like that. And then within the area, the submarket is very important, right? So, you know, you want to go into areas that even within an area is is going to be grow- growing. And so I want to buy in that area. So it's essentially under the guise of a rising tide lifts all boats. So if I buy in that way, I could theoretically still screw up the purchase. And within two years, it'll fix my, my mistake if I do that. All right. All right. Good answer. 
Where are you investing? So we're going to be in the Sun Belt. So, so we're in uh, we're in uh, you know in, in Jacksonville, Orlando, Florida is a great market. Alabama, Huntsville, Birmingham. We're in Memphis not because it's a growth market, but it's a high high cash flow market. So we love Memphis for for that reason. I know you do as well. Texas is very great. You know, Austin, uh, Houston, Dallas, very competitive. Uh, Atlanta, great market, also competitive. But that's kind of where the demographic is moving to is, is those is those areas. All right. Yeah, basically cool. the southeast. That's kind of what Southeast, I, South. Yeah. <clears throat> Anything that's warm, basically. Wherever the sun shines, no, people want to be. It's the same thing I tell <laughs> yeah. people. It's actually, it sounds really simple, but it's true. Is A, people are moving into those areas. If you look at like the population of the United States, it looks like someone took the whole thing and tilted it and everything's sliding down and to the right. <laughs> and then the fact I like investing in warmer areas because I don't like the problems that snow brings. Snow wears out roofs. It bursts pipes. You have to worry about shoveling it out of people's driveways. Like there's just a lot of problems. Like water causes problems in houses and anywhere it's really cold and it snows, you're going to get water. So even though that sounds really simple, most people doing what Michael's doing are, are investing in those same markets. There you go. Now, let me ask you this. Let me ask you go back and go to the location and that will lead us into this. Do you pick a market first and say, I'm only looking in these nine MSAs or whatever, or do you just op- like start meeting brokers and looking at deals or whatever in, in the entire Southeast and then evaluate the market after you find the deal? No, you should probably evaluate the markets first because there's only so many hours in a day. So, okay. you know, you, you study this, the, these markets and you pick maybe your top market, your po- top two market. You want to pick a market or markets that are big enough for you to generate the deal flow you need. So let's say if you want to analyze two deals a week, well, that means that whatever market or markets you pick should produce that level of, of volume. And if it doesn't, you should pick a larger market or maybe pick a second or possibly a third market. Okay. I like that. That's good. That's really, really good advice. So, okay. Once you got your market, then how do we find them? I mean, what are you typically doing? Are you doing direct mail, anything creative like that? Or is it just brokers? Like, yeah, what, what's your process? I love the creative stuff, but in this particular case, it's not a house flipping business. Yep. The number one way to find these deals is through brokers. And it's all about the relationship with those brokers. The good brokers, it's like the 80-20 rule, right? So 20% of the brokers control 80% of the volume in a, in a business. So you want to get to know those brokers and you want to build a relationship with them. And so what you're looking for is, is the, the point where they call you a week before they put a listing out. They'll say, hey, Brandon, I got this thing coming out. I'm still working on the marketing package. But if you come in at this so point, you know, I don't have to do a bunch of work and I could sell it without uh, doing a, a listing of some sort. Yeah. And that's really the magic. And that's something that someone starting from scratch can get, get into within 90 days, you know, to educate themselves, use the right language, build their team. As they approach the brokers, they seem very credible. Uh, they meet with them in person, maybe to tour some properties. And so getting to that level doesn't take years. It takes uh, weeks and, and maybe a few months. But that's where the magic happens is reaching out to more and more brokers and generating that deal flow and building that rapport with them. How do I find that 80-20, that 20% of brokers? I mean, because I, I I can't imagine going and asking other syndicators, hey, who's your broker in that market, right? Because like you're basically saying, hey, I'm going to compete directly with you with your same broker, right? So how do I find that 80-20 broker? Yeah, the best source is LoopNet, loopnet.com. It's okay. a free website. And typically we say that that's where, the, that's where deals go to die. Yeah. Uh, and that's partially true. Okay, partially true. But the biggest benefit of LoopNet is that's where you, all the listings are, whether they're dying or not, it doesn't matter. But the point is you can, you can see the, the listing brokers behind them. So you can look at all, the, you search in an area, the size you want, and then you create a spreadsheet of all the brokers in there. And to me, I make, I make note how many listings does that broker have? Because you see all the listings on LoopNet. Well, if someone's got one listing, eh, it could be less interesting. I'll still call them. 
them. Yeah. But if someone has a half a dozen listings, now it's a clue that this guy might be, you know, or gal might be might be a good broker. And then you always check the big the big brokerage houses, you know, Marcus Millichap, CBRE, you know, there's always the, the big ones and you can always go to their website directly. That's how you find them. So Brandon and I always say that and by Brandon and I, I mean me and Brandon agrees that rock stars, no rock stars, <laughs> right? So if you want to deal with the top 20% of brokers, which you do, you need to be the top 20% of investors because they're like the rock stars can sniff out if you're a pretender, if you're legit. Can you give us some practical advice for someone who's newer, who wants to desperately be in that top 20%, what they need to know and how they need to communicate? Yeah, it's actually much easier than people think. People just overcomplicate this thing. But I talk about education a lot. You need to have education. We threw out a lot of terms here today, but you need to know what those are. You need to, you need to use the right language, and you need to be able, you need to build your team. So as you approach a broker, you're talking. You're talking when they say, "Hey, tell me about yourself." You're not actually really talking about yourself. You're talking about your team. You're talking about the proper manager that manages five thousand units in Atlanta that the broker probably already knows, right? You're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And to elevate yourself quickly in the top twenty percent or broker, all you got to do is when you get a deal from them is get back to within 24 hours with feedback on that deal. So we have something called right. a 10-minute offer. It allows you to make an offer within 10 minutes of getting yeah. a marketing package. Fairly simple. And if you do that, and I polled some of our uh, brokers about this, uh, you know, I said, well, how many of people on your list actually get back to you in a deal? 25% will respond. So if you're one of those 25%, you'll be automatically in the 25%. That's so good. And this is, this is true for everything in life. Like people like want their job to be easier. If you just understand this thing and all like human civilization, right? If, if people want their job easier, if you can make someone's job easier for them, they will instantly like you, instantly want to do business with you, right? That applies for anything. Contractors, if you make their life better, make their job easier, boom. If you're trying to raise money, make it easy on your investors, right? Present the deal in a way that's easy. Don't complicate it with IRR when it's your grandma, right? Like it's people want easy, uh, whether or not they say it or not, everybody wants their life to be easier. So like, I, I know I bought an apartment in, uh, in Ohio and the way that it happened, I mean, I was at a conference and my uh, uh, Slocum, who is the agent that uh, Slocum Reed, so check him out if you're in Cincinnati market, but he, like, he was smart, right? So he knew that I used the bigger pockets calculators. He deliberately signed up for a bigger pockets pro membership that day, ran the numbers through that, knowing that that's how I would want to read it, sent me over the PDF. I pulled it up on my phone, looked at all the numbers, made it so easy for me to call him and be like, yeah, let's put an offer in right now. Right? Like he just, he knew exactly. And because of that, I ended up buying the deal, right? Like that, he made my job easy. And when you can do that, uh, I, I love that tip about just get back to the broker right away with feedback. I think that that right there is going to get a lot of people listening to this, like more deals this year. And that's, again, small deal, single family, duplex, whatever, your agent, your real estate agent, your broker, whatever, uh, any level, right? Yeah, love that stuff. All right, when you find a deal then, what's the process? You find something good, you run the numbers, and I wish we could spend four hours just on running the numbers here, but uh, I know you have a really good deal analyzer people can check out, but like after that point, you got this price, you know how much you think you can pay for it. What do you do? do you go, I mean, you don't have a real estate agent in this case, it's not like residential. So what's the process look like? Yeah, that's a little bit different than on the house side. On the house side, you you make an offer by essentially sending over uh, typically an MLS kind of contract. With commercial real estate, it starts easier than that. I mean, typically the offer is made verbally or via email. And then you are invited to, quote, make an offer. And what that means is you submit a letter of intent, which is a legally meaningless piece of plain English document that says, I'm buying it for this price. I want 30 days to look at it. I'm going to close and so-and-so. And people sign it. Uh, and the reason for that is a conversation piece, number one, then you hand that to the attorney because that costs real money. 
So once people sign the LOI, again, which is not legally binding, the next phase is then actually create a, what's called a purchase and sales agreement, and the, the attorney drafts that up. And that's bounced back and forth, red line here and there. And then when you sign that, you're officially under contract, which is a major milestone, but now the real work begins because now you have to kind of see what you put under contract. You have to unwrap the box and crack it open and see what you got. There you go. I, I like that. I think that's really good advice because a lot of people are afraid to take that first step because they think they don't know everything there is to know. So they don't take a step at all. But the way that this works for people that are really good at it is this is a series of like a hundred small steps and you don't need to know step two before you take step one. In fact, you cannot know step two until you take step one and you do it enough times, you start to recognize patterns that come up over and over and over. And so you get more efficient with your time. But Literally, the only way to learn this is to is to put something under contract, start looking into it, realize, oh, I can't buy it because of that. And then the next time you come across a similar situation, you're like, no, 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 I know that didn't work out. I'll do it different. That's really good. All right. So what about like earnest money? When's that due? Does it work the same way as residential? I mean, you got to pay some money when you make an offer, right? Or when do you owe that? And how much is it usually? Yeah, it's, 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 it's similar. Uh, typically, it's due within a certain number of days after the signing of the contract, not the letter of intent, so after signing the contract. And it's typically somewhere around 1% uh, of, the, of the purchase price. Some brokers are you know, looking or sellers are looking for um, that, that's, quote, hard on day one, meaning that's non-refundable. Uh, it's, okay. it's happening a little bit. It's starting to back off a little bit just because we're in a bit, uh, have been in a, in a seller's market. Uh, we don't prefer to do that, but uh, sometimes that happens. Okay. So once you're into it, tell me about funding. What kind of options do people have to fund deals? Funding as in the debt side or the equity side? Probably both. So the funding side is uh, through loans, right? So uh, the best way to do it is to have a previous relationship with a mortgage broker who can bring a variety of loan products to the table. So this depends a lot on your deal. Is it a stable deal, meaning that is it occupied at 90% or above? Or is it a, uh, is it more of a non-stabilized deal if it's occupied below that? That affects the loan product. So if you have a, a building that's 90% occupied you qual- and it's a, a, the, the loan amount is a, at least a million dollars, you qualify for Fannie or Freddie uh, small loan balance of uh, loans, which are the cheapest and best you can you can get. They're non-recourse, meaning you don't have to personally guarantee them. And that's the way to go if you can. If you don't qualify, if the deal doesn't qualify for that, then there's something called bridge loans. Bridge loans are short-term loans between one and three years. Uh, that many of them are also non-recourse. Uh, some are personally guaranteed. If the deal is smaller, you're going to have to go with a regional or local bank and get those loans. And those are almost always personally guaranteed. So is the purpose of a bridge loan to get you from a non-stable asset into a stable asset so that you can then refinance it with the best debt? That's right. Yeah. So that's very similar to what Brandon and I talked about with single family homes, where you use a hard money loan to get the house. You get it yep. fixed up. You get it rented out. That would be the equivalent of it being stabilized. Then you go refinance it into a lower interest that's rate. Right. Yeah. It's funny, actually, when when we talk about Burr investing on bigger pockets all the time, Burr investing, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, like that was stolen directly from how syndicators operate most of their apartment buildings. Like they, they buy big apartments, they then rehab those apartments and they add the value and they're renting them out now for cash flow. And they got this remodel thing. Then they go and refinance it, pay their investors off, maybe get, you know, get cashed out, whatever, and then repeat the process, go do it again. It's like, all we're, when we're talking Burr, all we're talking is doing a smaller version of what syndicators are doing all the time. So I always thought that was fascinating. So what about this? Deal first or loan first? I mean, like, you know, do you need to go get pre-approved in the same way on a residential? Should I go talk to a loan broker right now and get pre-approved? 
or no? No and yes. So you don't get pre-approved with commercial loans, but you should talk to a loan broker before. And the reason is, number one, relationships are important. And when you need to leverage those relationships is normally in a, in a time where you have a deal where time is of the essence. And number two is you have to know the terms of the loan and their underwriting requirements. For example, you know, if you don't know the interest rate or the amortization or the uh, uh, or the 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 requirements around how many reserves they require or what is the liquidity requirements of the sponsor, because you have to have a certain net worth and liquidity. If you don't know those things, uh, it could really ruin your deal. If you underwrite it when you analyze the numbers using false assumptions or you um you you tr- you try to do a deal and when the when the uh, lender tries to quote underwrite you they determine that your net worth is not high enough and then you have to go find someone that is and bring them in the deal all that can can ruin your deal so it's very important that you understand uh, the loan products that that the that the loan broker has and some of the parameters around them all right that's that actually leads to a good point uh, about if your net worth is not high enough. Now I've heard a rule of, maybe this is a rule of thumb, maybe this is an actual rule, maybe it's completely not, but I've heard people say, you need to have a net worth higher than the loan amount. Is that true or is that just a rule of thumb or how does that work? Yeah, that's about right. And you also need to have liquidity, meaning cash or in the bank that's equal to 10% of the loan balance. Okay, and that's gotta be somebody in the general partnership, correct? That's right. So the key is then you, if you don't have that, you sit on the couch and you watch Dancing with the Stars every night until you're retired, right? No, you bring in somebody, right? That's right. You bring in someone. This is the beauty of syndication. Remember we talked about the entrepreneur making something happening out of nothing. Well, if you have, don't have that net worth, then go find someone who does. This could be one of your potential investors, but it doesn't have to be your investors. It could be someone uh, that likes you, wants to support you, but has no interest in investing in a deal, but they would be willing to co-sponsor or co-sign the note. Now, if they're co-signing on a non-personally guaranteed note, the risk is very, very low, even for the co-signer, right? The only time it, there was a recourse for them if there's fraud and fraud was committed and proven, and hopefully that won't happen. So someone is co-guaranteeing a non-recourse loan. In return, they will get equity in the deal. The question is, how much do you give them? Again, it depends on where you are in life, but you give them, uh, you know, give them equity, give them some acquisition fees or whatever the case may be. Do whatever it takes to get that person on board. All right. That sounds like a really good position to be at in life is to be somebody who's just rich enough to just like. It's a strategy. Oh, <clears throat> Brandon, it's a yeah. strategy. There's people, all they do all day says, hey, I'm, I'm rich. Let me go sign <laughs> and I'll, I'll get, I'll get 10% for every single deal. You 10 of them and essentially own hundred percent of, you know, deals across 10 different deals. It literally yeah. is a strategy and they're never investing in any of their own money. All they're doing is co-sponsoring stuff. And the risk is in the scheme of things, extremely low. That's fascinating. That's what I want to be. I've, I've yeah. decided I'm going to, we're going to call it uh, rich hacking and I'm just going to make myself available. I'll just pour myself out. If you guys need somebody to go into your deal with a high net worth and some liquidity. And what's funny is that the money that I make from the deals will then go back into my like savings net account. Worth. So I have even more net worth and more liquidity, which makes me able to do more deals. And you're just in this awesome spiral upwards. Yeah, Thank Robert you, Kiyosaki would be proud. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Okay, right, this is awesome. Very. So now that I know I want to do this, and I, I obviously have to start moving forward, I need to build a team. So tell me, where should I start with building my team and who are the team members I'm going to need? So we talked about the mortgage broker. That's the second most important team member. The first one by far is the property manager. And you, it's not for the reasons you think, yes, they're going to manage my property, which you think is sequentially after you close the deal. No, the property manager will help you buy the property. So if your business plan calls for $5,000 a unit to get a $100 rent bump, my first question is, how do you know? Are you making this up? Did you go to rentometer.com? And the answer better be no, because I talked to three property managers, and this is what they told me. They all told me the same thing. I'm like, okay, now we got something. 
That's great. Great. So what about negotiation tricks? You know, like uh, when I, when they come back, do you know what, not any tricks or just tips or advice on the negotiation process? So I don't know about tips or tricks, but there are some things that are very, very important. There's, there's at least two major mistakes that people make. One is uh, the point at which due diligence begins. So most contracts read, hey, from, you know, you have 30 days from the signing of this contract to complete your due diligence, which sounds great. But the problem is what if it takes a seller two weeks to give you all the documents that you requested? But so all of a sudden now you have two weeks to do diligence. That doesn't sound right. So yeah. so make sure due diligence starts at the point where you receive all the documents. They can take a year for all you care. Don't matter. Clock that doesn't start ticking until you have all the documents. So that's number one. Number that's two, great. always always get law, a contract extensions because here's what happens. Okay, and it's hardly ever your fault. The bank almost always takes longer for reasons you can't control. I, again, it just it it's all over the board. The reason why sometimes we never know. But if you don't have contract extensions, if the bank or the lender takes longer than the 45 or 60 days that they promised, you're essentially in default. Uh, now, the seller may give you an extension because they want to, otherwise they'd have to start over again, but sometimes they don't. We've had, we've had sellers where they felt that they, you know, they should have gotten more. And so they actually are looking for a way to get out. So that's a problem. So what we do is we always have at least one, if not more, extensions in return for additional deposit. Right, so you know, pick your pick your favorite deposit. But I could say for an extra quarter point, I'm buying myself a 30 day extension, and we propose unlimited extensions. And if and then there might be a back and forth on it. Maybe you end up on two or three or maybe one. But that is by far those two tips. If you gotta insist on those two, perfect. I love that. It's great. All right. So what about uh, like management? Now you close a deal, you get, you get through the whole process. Oh, actually, before we get there, title companies, are they the same ones who close this or the attorneys or both? Yeah, it's morally, uh, normally attorney with a title company. Uh, so okay. you're all you're in this, unlike with residential, uh, where you're not really working with an attorney, you are always working with an attorney and you're always working with your own attorney. You're not sharing one with a seller. You have okay. your own attorney uh, and they're going to be helping you with a, with a purchase and sales contract. They're also going to sh- help you with a, with a closing. Okay, cool. So now you buy the thing and now you are uh, going to manage it. Now you're not out there swinging a hammer. You're not showing up at the office every day at the apartment building managing, correct? Like how does the management part work uh, on a syndication deal? Yeah. So while you're doing due diligence and before you've closed the contract, you should have uh, interviewed and vetted and selected your ideal property management company. And once you've selected them, you sign a management agreement that becomes effective uh, pending the closing of the deal. And so the, you know, the morning after or the day after or the hour after you close, Close, there's a plan in place where the property manager walks in, they put letters on, on everybody's door, here's the new address to send your rents to, they take the keys and they move into the office and we start uh, managing the asset. All right, that makes that makes sense. Cool. And then uh, I'm wondering, how much work do you spend managing your manager? I mean, like, I, and that actually ties into the next question. I'll just ask both right here and then we can go back, you know, go back to the management part. One of the things I, I've that I've held back from the syndication model is because I feel like I'm just getting into another job. Like it's a lot of work. I mean, like there's a lot of steps here. Does it get easier over time once you buy it? Does it really reduce your hours down to something that's more manageable or like, and, and then how does a property manager play into that? So the short answer is yes. Uh, however, a lot of it hinges on the quality of your property manager. You can have a property manager who's, who's, who's not good and all you're doing is chasing them, micromanaging them, 
pulling your hair or in your case, beard out. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the other extreme. And you're spending way more uh, on, a, on managing a property than you should. On the other hand, you have a property manager who's just high quality, stable, just getting the job done. And the extent of our management is a 30-minute call with them where we talk through any issues. Uh, they're already putting out reports, so I already get my dashboards. So just talking about action items and things that we want to do. Very, very simple. On the, in, on the investor side, depending on what stage you're in, uh, you, you might have 10 investors or so for their first deal, let's say. That's not a lot of extra work. So once, once a month, you're putting out a report. Once a quarter, you're sending out checks. As you get a little larger, there are websites and systems out there that help you automate that. So you load your investors into a deal. Uh, it, it's it's a, like a CRM system. It allows you to email them, upload reports, and it just eases all that stuff. So really, all you're doing is you're uploading a report, which you should be doing anyway for your own benefit, communicating it out. So So really... Uh, it really, this is one of the things I love this. It's not, there's no such thing as passive income. I truly believe that. I used to think there was, but there, there isn't. And this is not completely passive. The only passive thing, no, I was going to say something that's not true either is, you know, but it's a highly, highly leveraged activity. I mean, for in 30 minutes, I can quote manage a 321 unit building. That's insane. That's insane. Versus I can spend 10 hours chasing a guy on a, on a 12 unit building, right? That's so size of distance doesn't matter. It's all, it's all on, on the quality of the proper manager. What about limited partners? Would you consider that to be passive income? Uh, yes, l- large, largely. But they still have to go to the bank, right? They still have to wire. I mean, I've been a, I've been a limited partner num- a couple times now. And like, it's still. Annoying. Oh, I love this. Only Brandon considers it work to have to go to the bank to wire money. This is ridiculous. I have so to wait in line. It's, it's funny, the limited partners. So after like three or four months or six months, you know, when, like, when it stops becoming exciting or new anymore, they don't even open the emails anymore. So yeah. I was going to say stocks is the closest passive, but actually that, mm. that was going to say that's not true. But, but you're right. LPs is even uh, closer to passive. Passive. Because you should spend a lot of time up front, you know, vetting your operator. People, you're, that's a lot of work. A lot of work, yeah. vetting, 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 vetting. But once you've found that person and you've made the investment, there's not much you can do. I mean, you're tied up for like five years. That's uh, me. That's our buddy, Andrew. I just ride that racehorse. I don't even pay attention to where it's going. I just let it take me. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, so how does somebody vet a syndicator? I mean, how? why should I invest with you, Michael, or any of the other syndicators on the show? Like, what? What makes me feel comfortable about that? There's a variety of things, uh, but but all it, the operator is the is the is everything because the, a strong operator is going to find the right deal in the right market and finding the right proper manager, right? So it's it's really about the operator that has track record and consistency, right? So you want to look and see who the who the partner or partners are and what is their track record. What are their systems behind their operation? Like how are they managing these things? And do you like them? Do you trust them? Right. That's that's really really all, all it is. And uh, and that takes some time, right? You want to get to know certain people, and then once you found them, uh, you may want to never invest all your money in one deal. Uh, you may want to do that with a second operator, but you don't need a lot of operators. Like you need two or three strong operators that you invest with over and over again, and and uh, people do very 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 well just by doing that. So it's a lot of work up front, and uh, and then you just keep doing it over. You see how they perform. You know, let, let's let's wait a couple of distribution checks, see how they communicate, see how they're how they're uh, executing towards the business plan. How are they behaving? And I see that a couple times, and now uh, I can reinvest and tell all my friends about it. All right, really, really good stuff. Really good stuff. Now I want to tie all this together in the next segment of the show, which we call our deal, deal deep dive. dive. 
You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means? Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your resident's living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from Price for Life offer and may be increased. All right, let's get to the deal deep dive. This is the part of the show where we dive deep into one particular deal that you've done, something that you want to talk about. It could be a good deal, it could be a bad deal, it could be something, but we're going to ask you just a bunch of specific questions actually very much related to what we just went through for the last 20 minutes in theory. Now we're going to go into practical. So do you have something in mind, a recent deal, something, Michael, we can dig into? Sure. It's a 321 unit in Memphis. All right. That uh, was my first question is what, what was it and where was it? So, all right. Next one. I'll go, how did you find it? So we found it back through making something happen out of nothing. We found it through a deal finder through by joint venturing with someone who had a deal, young guy, didn't have any money, but had hustle, found this deal, brought it to us. And we partnered with him, uh, raised the money on it. That's how we found it. And how much did you pay for it? So we are we paid about seven million for it. We had a four million dollar renovation budget. Wow, wow, that's a that's a pretty big reno. Okay, uh, how did you? Any negotiation stories, tricks, things that you worked in there, didn't work in there? What was the negotiation? No, not not really. I mean, we we just pay attention to some of the two things that we talked about earlier, and uh, okay. those are really really important because sometimes it does take 10, 14 days to get all the documents, especially on a property like like that. And uh, yeah. I can't remember offhand whether we needed to have that extension, but the probability is pretty high that we exercise at least one. Okay. All right. All right. And uh, how did you fund this bad boy? So we funded it again, again, joint venturing. We raised, raised money from direct investors as well, but we also had a joint venture partner. Actually, we had two in the deal. And again, the joint venturing is kind of the key idea with multifamily, as you can tell. We joint venture a lot. Joe Fairless joint ventures a lot. It's just a really cool, exciting thing where we joint venture with deal finders and also capital raisers. So we had a couple of capital raisers in the deal. 
And the capital raiser is possibly starts off as a passive investor, really likes it, tells her friends about it, and then brings the capital into a syndication. And in, in return, they become a general partner. And what I love about it is that the result is exactly the same. They get equity in a deal, they get passive income, and they get long-term wealth. So we partner with a couple of uh, capital raisers in addition to raising some of their own capital and it allowed us to raise a lot more. And this is a, a very common uh, model, which then increases your capacity to raise money. That's cool. So I had not even known about this and I feel silly saying this because like I've been in the industry for so long, but I didn't know this was how it was done until just fairly recently that like, like you as a syndicator can bring in other general partners who have the other strengths that maybe you don't have or you don't have time for, right? So you bring in the capital raisers and they become part of the deal, but they're out there raising money from their family, you know, family, friends, colleagues, whatever, because they're in those circles and they like doing that. And then there's the, you know, you bring in a partner who is really good at working with brokers and negotiating and finding deals and they're in a good market. Maybe they can go check things out, whatever. And you're all part of the general partnership together in a way, because like, it's what we always talk about the show is like, focus on your strengths, figure out what you're good at. What do you like doing? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That makes me so happy. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it should, right? So if yeah. someone's a, a relationship person and they and the idea of an Excel spreadsheet just wants to make them slit their wrists, right? Well, <laughs> then they're gonna there's, there's it's, it's a, literally a career path. It's a it's a career yeah. path where all they do is raise money, uh, and then we see partnerships forming between two different kinds of people: the relationship people and the you know the analytical people, right? So if you're an analytical person, detail oriented, uh, the relationship guy is not, right? That's they like yeah. the relationship people. So we see a lot of partnerships forming uh, in that regard. One of them raises the money and has a relationship with a broker. The other guy does the analysis, the chief underwriter and the due diligence. And those partnerships work fabulous. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, anyway, that, it makes me happy because like, I, I, as I've said before, like there's some things I'm just not good at. I know that like, I'm not real great at raising money. I mean, I have a, a big platform and I reach out to people, but like talking to people raising money is not one of my strengths, but I, I love all day long, like digging through numbers and going through spreadsheets and figuring out what I can pay. I'll do that all day long. So actually recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I sat down and I worked out what, a, uh, there's a book called a vivid vision. It's like basically like you write down a document, exactly what you want your company to look like in a few years. And I spec'd it out. Like I want like within like, hopefully by the end of this year, I want to have two or three people that work with me directly, whether or not it's a, an employee or a JV, but like, I want somebody who just raises money because they're so good at that. And I want somebody else who's just really good at building relationships with brokers. And like, that's what I'm building right now uh, in my own real estate business. Um, because for that same reason, the JV thing, anyway, it just makes me happy to know that even though I've got weaknesses in life, you know, there's ways to compensate. You don't have to just sit on the couch and watch Dancing with the Stars. You can go out there and invest anyway. All right, Michael, you mentioned having a big reno budget, which was actually, I mean, if it was a $7 million deal and $4 million was for the renovation, that's huge. Tell me, like, what did you do with this deal once you had it fixed up? So it was, this was a, a compounded value add deal, meaning there were, there were multiple problems with it, which is one reason we loved it so much. So the vacancy was high. It was about 30%. The question is why, right? Is the market bad or is it something else? So this is an important question to answer. The answer to that question is they just didn't turn units over. You know, the comps were all 96% occupied. Now, the question is why weren't they turning units over? You got to understand these things. It was a, uh, a an older partnership. One of the senior partners had passed away and there was a younger partner that came on and they he wanted to take the company into senior living, which is highly profitable. 
They built this thing in the 70s and 80s. It was probably paid off, making a gobs of money for them. Uh, they don't need to, like I said, uh, you know, get the last dime out of, out of that one. Then, because of that, the rents were under market. So just as the, the units were, they were probably about $75 under market compared to the comps in the consistent condition. But then there were other comps uh, that, were, that were improved, considerably so. And so there was another $75 rent bump. So you go in there with a $4 million renovation budget, meaning you're going to replace the roof, parking lot, new lights, camera system, playground, fire you know, pit. You're putting $5,000 per unit in. You're painting the exterior. You're removing the 70s style mansards on the side. You do all that. It's going to look just like the property down the road that's getting $150 more in rent. And, yeah. uh, and that's, so that's how we used, uh, we used that renovation money. Cool. All right. So what was the outcome at the end? I mean, you put in, you bought for seven, you put in four. Uh, what was the outcome? What did you end up doing? So there? this is a case study in your Burr method, because what we, uh-huh. we just, we just refinanced out literally last week uh, at a valuation of something like 13 million for that. So we were into it for seven plus eight and we added about five, six, six million dollars in, in value, returned 90% of the investor's capital back. And now we're just going to hold it. Wow. That's awesome. Okay, so let me go, let me go back because I, I must have. So you bought? Did you buy it for seven and put in four more, or is the seven including the four? So actually, we bought it for seven, and we didn't actually put in the four. We had four, but we only deployed about. We only the, the crazy thing is we only deployed about a million of of the four. Wow. Wow. Uh, and it's just it's just because it was so compounded. There was some, so many multiple problems, and coupled yeah. with a very strong property manager. I mean, he, within so we bought it at like sixty eight percent occupied. Within three months, he was at he hit the ninety percent mark, and wow. uh, and it was just it's just it's just flawless execution. We can never we never have done that without a strong property manager. Very very cool. That's incredible. Okay, so what did you learn from this deal? Well, a, a lot of things. Now, typically, you don't you don't nearly you don't learn nearly as much on successful deals that you do with unsuccessful deals, which we could spend another episode on. So, having said that, I learned yeah. relatively little. I'm just kidding. So, but it's, <laughs> it's it, you learn a lot of things. Num- number one, it's it's really about your team is is really important. I mean, that property manager. And we've had other not so uh, mixed results where the property manager was more than mixed, unable to execute on her business plan, uh, replaced the property manager, got back on track, but lost six months in the in the in the process. Right, so that's not that's not ideal. But the property manager we talked about before is so critical, so critical. Number two, joint venturing is very very powerful for the reasons we talked about. Very good, very very good. All right. Cool, cool deal. I like hearing that. Uh, let's move on to the next segment, the fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, it's time for the world famous fire round. These questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums, which you can visit at biggerpockets.com/forums. And uh, let's see what you got to say. So, number one, let's see. I'm. Uh, this is from. AJ, I think that's this. AJ, uh, I'm new to investing and I want to be a house hacker. So I want to buy like a duplex, triplex, fourplex, live in one unit in Baton Rouge, LA. Oh no, not LA, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I can live free and learn how to be a landlord on a small scale first. When finding a potential small multifamily deal, what are some of the things I need to request from the listing agent or seller to completely analyze this deal? So I wouldn't, first of all, 
So I wouldn't rely on the listing agent at all, right? So uh, with a, with a, with a, anything less than five units, you can look at the rental. You have to look at the rental income, but it's not going to be valued. It's going to, going to be comps. So you want to look at the comps from your from your listing agent. Um, obviously, you want to understand what the rents are so you can kind of figure out, can I cover my expenses, my mortgage? But it's all going to be comps driven. House hacking, by the way, is a fabulous way to get started. And I've, I've talked to several people. That's exactly how they got started. They got an FHA loan, 3% yep. down. It's crazy, insane. You got to live in it for a year, uh, um, but it's fantastic. So my counsel is try to get something that's undervalued, meaning that it's maybe vacant or partially vacant or, or kind of needs repair and and do the same thing we talked about here. While while it's not going to be income driven, comps are also driven by condition as everybody knows, right? So the income is not so important, but the, the way it looks is very, very important. But I love that. It's a great, great way to get started uh, in, in the business. Cool. All right. Next question is from Zach. He says, I'm new to real estate investing, and I just spoke to an investor whose niche is Section 8 housing. This seems to be an interesting niche market. Do you have any experience with Section 8? And if so, how has it gone? Uh, yes, I do have experience with Section 8. And it went well, but it was very painful. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this was a property in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, S- Section 8 is it, definitely a specialty. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Uh, D.C. Is, is difficult because not so much because of Section 8, but because of the landlord-tenant laws are highly favorable to tenants. Makes it very difficult to manage in that. And similar, I suspect, from our herds in New York and California. But Section 8 is, a, in fact, a strategy, kind of like student housing. Uh, the property manager is key. So when we first did that deal, I had the wrong property manager in, in place to didn't know what they were doing, constantly struggling. And then we replaced them with someone who specialized in Section 8, knows all the organizations, knows all the inspectors. And it was like, wow, it was like, it was like night and day. So if that's what you want to do, uh, I think it's a, uh, especially if you want to help out lower income, um, it's it's definitely a strategy. Just make sure your property manager is in line with, with that asset. There you go. All right. Next one. We kind of touched on this already, but it's a good one. So we'll ask it quick. I've settled on what I think is a great market for my first multifamily purchase. Who should I form a relationship with first? A broker, a lender, a property manager, or a contractor? So it's like David Green here talks a lot about the core four, which are like those four people, right? Broker, lender, property manager, and contractor. And one will hopefully lead to the other because rock stars, no rock stars, rock stars, no rock stars. So the question for you, Michael, here is like, who should you form a relationship with first? Who would you recommend? I'm going to agree with what David says. Uh, I would leave out the contractor because typically the property manager will bring those in. But you really want to have the property manager and the broker kind of simultaneously. Uh, Ideally, if you have the property manager on, on board first, you can reference them when you talk to the broker. All right. Good. Cool. Okay. Last question of the fire round. When you're negotiating the price of a single family home, there's a lot of psychology and emotion involved. How is negotiating a multifamily deal different from that? I assume someone who's selling an apartment building is more sophisticated and data focused. So how do you get them to move on price? Yeah, it was, you might think that it really depends on the size of the building that you're working with, right? If you're dealing with 12, 25, even 50 you know, unit buildings, there's a lot of mom and pop owners out, out there and they're not sophisticated at all. And this could be a good thing or a bad thing. It could be a good thing if they're completely mispricing the asset. We bought one just like it and they just didn't really know what they had and it was great. But sometimes they have unrealistic expectation because someone down the road said they sold it for a gazillion dollars. So thusly, because I, they don't know how to value, value that. But in general, uh, that is true. It's much more numbers driven, which makes it a lot easier. A lot easier because I'm dealing with three levers, price, NOI, and cap rate. That's, that's it. 
price NOI and cap rate, right? So I can have a very uh, objective conversation with someone. If I adjust someone's net operating income because they're very, obviously way too low and their expenses are underreported, if I apply some rules of thumb to that, I can then adjust my NOI normally down, which then reduces the price down. And if the NOI is lower, the price is lower. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. Broker? Uh, yes, because <laughs> that's how it works. I love that you boiled it down into this, those three levers, right? Like when you understand what generates value in an asset class, it becomes very simple to understand what to do. And you just do a very good job, Michael, of explaining that. So it seems a lot less daunting than it might from the, from an unsophisticated perspective. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, that's pretty much the end of our famous uh, fire round. <laughs> Let me, yeah. let's, let's head into the famous four. Let's head into the famous four. Wait, we didn't do the sound effect. <laughs> Cue it here. Famous Four. The Famous Four is the part of the show where we ask guests every week the same four questions. And we've asked you this, Michael, now, what, 500 years ago when you were on the show last time, but we're going to ask you again. Michael, other than your own, which you have a fantastic book, but other than your own, what's your favorite real estate related book? What's a real estate book you can recommend? Well, I did enjoy yours that you put out a couple of years ago, the How We Bought 24 Unit. That was awesome oh, because it okay. makes a lot of my points. It's just, hey, you got started, you got it done, you were creative. I love that. Um, oh, Matt Faircloth's recent book on raising money is is fabulous because yeah. uh, I interviewed him a little while ago, Raising Private Capital, Building Your Real Estate Empire. Really good, really good job on that. Uh, I'd say my recent uh, favorite non-real estate book, though I apply it to real estate, is probably The One Thing by Gary Keller. Mm-hmm. It's just... It just clarified so many things for me and then gave me the tools to actually just work on that one thing. Cool. That's awesome. Since you answered question number two with question number one, you're an efficient man, clearly a multifamily investor. Well, Tell us what are maybe, maybe he has another recommendation. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, maybe. do you have a, a second non-real estate book that you really like? Uh, one that made a lot of difference to me about two and a half years ago was uh, The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Um, in fact, he's speaking at our event later in the summer, so I'm really oh, excited nice. to have him on board. So awesome. I know, Brandon, you know you Hal. Um, yeah. But that made a pretty big difference. I've always been struggling kind of with a morning routine, like how do I structure it? What do I do? And he really makes that very actionable. So that's made a pretty big difference to me. Do you know, actually, the reason we're all here right now, the reason me and David Green here are like besties is because of <laughs> Hal Elrod, actually. Wow. Hal Elrod was the whatever you want to call that, the hinge between David and I, he introduced uh, us all together. And this is, this is why we're here today. So thank you, Hal. Yeah. How, how was the matchmaker that made this magic happen? Matchmaker, right. matchmaker, make me a match. All right. Uh, next one. Number three. What are some of your hobbies? So I love to travel. Uh, that's my number one thing. I, uh, and I love to travel with my family. So we normally, we travel at least 30 days uh, out of the year. If we can do it longer than that, then, uh, you know, that's, that's ideal. Like so in one shot or do you do a lot of separate little trips? Ideally in one shot. And, and, you know, as you, as you know, we can do this business anywhere in the world. And so yep. why not do it? Why, yep. you know, why look at the same four walls every time when you could be in Prague or in, yeah. you know, in Mexico or wherever the case may be. So, uh, and our entire team is virtual as well for that, for that same reason. Uh, other right. than that, uh, play competitive tennis, uh, probably less than I used to and less than I should, but those are some of my, my hobbies. Nice. Brandon likes to travel too. He travels to Starbucks <laughs> and all kinds of different places. Starbucks in Rome, Starbucks in Prague, Starbucks yeah, exactly. in Hawaii. I, no, I, this is a true story. We went to Paris a few years ago. And uh, I mean, this is like eight years ago now. Uh, and my wife and I like literally like walked for like hours and hours <laughs> trying to find a Starbucks. Like how could there not be a Starbucks in Paris? We finally found one. <laughs> it made our life. It made the whole trip worth it. There was also like the Eiffel Tower crap, but like really it was Starbucks. <laughs> <out here. laughs> 
All right. Uh, <laughs> you had to walk past all those horrible French coffee shops to try to find the good Starbucks yes. in the yes, city of Paris. Exactly. Yeah, we're not going to go with that. <laughs> uh, hey, Michael, because I didn't ask you this earlier and I should have and I want to now and I'm going to totally break apart the famous four here. But you mentioned your team is remote. What does your team look like? I mean, employee versus like out, you know, like people you just work with, partners, whatever. Like what does the overall structure of your business look like? Yeah, it depends a little bit on which side you're looking at, but on the on the syndication side, it's all essentially partners, right? So there's no salary, no by the hour. Everyone's working for equity. That's okay. really it is. And on the other side, it's it is they're they're paid as a contractor. They're either paid as almost like a partner, or they're 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 all entrepreneurs at, at the heart of uh, the heart of it. So that's kind of why we love working in this environment. Yeah. Do you have people who just like underwrite? Again, I know we're breaking the four, like who just like, you just have underwrite deals left and right because like, you know, as a first pass before you get to them. Uh, yes, well, we, we do actually. And a lot of other people do as well. And yeah. they, they, they use whatever analyzer tool, you just tell them to use it. And so by the time it gets to your desk, there's a certain amount of pre-qualification that they've done to the deal. So if you're doing volume or you're a busy guy or gal, or you don't love the underwriting process, it's yeah. a great way. Uh, you might pay them, you know, 20 bucks an hour and give them a sliver of equity once you close a deal. And there are people out there a lot. And we, like I said, we see a lot of partnerships forming in that in that way. Yeah. Well, I know both David and I are, are beginning to look into having those people on our team. So if there's people listening to this right now, you've made it through a whole hour and a half long show on this stuff and you're interested, reach out to one of us and maybe Michael too, you know, like if you like analyzing deals, you're good at it. Maybe you're a, what a high, what is it? High C. C. Yeah. High C, right? Like you like crunching numbers. Yeah. Reach out to any of the three of us. I bet we could, you know, we could chat. So, uh, all right. Going back to the famous four, what do you believe sets apart successful syndicators from those who give up, they fail, or they never get started. Yeah. So I thought some, some, uh, some time about this thing, and I think it's really, really fundamental. Uh, there's, there's various tactics and mindset things, but really fundamentally, it comes down to deciding. Here's what I mean by that. Okay. So one of my favorite quotes is a quote by uh, Tony Robbins, which is on my wall here. It is in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. What I found is I study people who are successful and who never get out of the, the gate. It comes down to them deciding that enough is enough, deciding that being in the same place this time next year is no longer acceptable to them. And typically there's some kind of trigger event. It could be a, a health event or it could be an experience with, uh, with, with, a, you know, with their daughter about missing their recital the next day. And something just clicks in their mind going, hey, I've been working for 20 years. If I keep this up, I'm going to work another 20 years and I'm going to miss my kids grow up. Yeah. Or whatever the case may be. And and something happens inside then where they decided that this can no longer go on. And, and if they've truly decided that, what happens is there can be no other result but that which they've already decided. Yep. On the other hand, there's other people who have not decided. Here's what this looks like. Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'm ready to get started in multifamily investing. All right, great. Well, you got to make time for that. Oh, yeah, I'll make time for that. Two months later, they take a promotion at work, which requires them to travel nonstop. Well, wait, let me get this straight. You just told me you were trying to find time to get started. Now you accepted a promotion. So you just lie to yourself and me in the process. And that's a difference what I mean by people who have truly decided and then make decisions and set priorities accordingly. Wow. That, you good. sound like Brandon Turner during a webinar right now. <laughs> Speaking of webinars, biggerpockets.com slash webinar. You can sign up for one. All right. That's it's really free great. free real estate. You got to be there. It's free real estate. 
Brandon's webinars are incredible. Okay, well, Michael, this has been probably one of my favorite episodes, mostly because we just feel like we got to rip free right. knowledge out of you to help our own businesses. <laughs> and if 250,000 other people are listening, well, that's cool. But it really, Brandon and I benefited. Can you tell me, for people that are fascinated by what you do, what you know, and what you can do for them, how can they find out more about you? I mean, the first thing is just to check out my book, which is called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. And uh, it's on Amazon. It's a bright yellow cover, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. It really embodies a lot of what we talked about here. It's really the mission that I'm passionate about. If people want to quit their jobs with real estate and they got real estate in their mind, uh, strongly consider multifamily, even if they have no prior experience or cash. That's probably a great uh, entry point into that world. Uh, the website is uh, themichaelblank.com. That's how people can find me. Perfect, dude. Well, thank you very, very much. This has been like just... Really, really, really fantastic. So thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you around. I'll have to get you back on the show again someday in the future and kind of see when you get to that billion dollar level. I don't know. Is that, is that a goal of yours? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> All right. I like it. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. And we'll see you around. Thanks. All right. That was our show with the Michael Blanc. Fantastic. Love that. Love that guy. Like, I, I just feel like I, I learned like my brain grew three sizes, kind of like the Grinch, his heart grew three sizes. Yeah, my brain just went do, 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 just like that. I don't know if your head has the capacity to get any bigger. <laughs> I don't know if that's- I have a pretty safe. big head. But it, can, it can get bigger though. It's, it's, it's got room. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was an awesome show. I mean, that was just so much actionable meat and potatoes type stuff. Like normally you got to pay a lot of money to get information like that. So Michael did a great mm -hmm. job. Yeah, it was really, really good. So cool. Well, everybody, uh, take one thing from today's show and go apply it to your life, right? Maybe that means you're going to listen to it again and go try to pull out a couple things. But like this stuff, you know, knowledge alone isn't, isn't enough, right? It's got to be knowledge plus action. So take some action. If you're driving to work right now, you're driving home from work, like that's great. Learning this stuff is important and you should continue to do so. But it doesn't matter if you don't put it into action. So go to your calendar, Put it in there. Hey, at this time, I'm going to contact this broker. At this time, I'm going to go and go on LoopNet and go find some brokers. Or at this time, I'm going to go and run the numbers on my first multifamily and see what it looks like. That's so important is to get that on your calendar. It'll increase the chance of you actually doing it. That's all I got. Off my soapbox. Let's get out of here. All right. This was an awesome time. This is David Green for Brandon. Big old head turner signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own.
Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.